HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by S. Wallace Edwards & Sons, third-generation cure masters producing the country's best dry-cured and aged hams, bacon, and sausage. For more information, visit edwardsvaham.com. Hey, 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 I'm Jimmy Carboni from Beer Sessions Radio. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. everybody, and welcome to the Farm Report, where we talk about the nitty-gritty of agriculture and food production each week. I'm your host, Holly Cedarholm, and we're broadcasting live from Heritage Radio Network in Bushwick, Brooklyn. As you can tell, I'm not your regular host, but fear not, friends, Erin Fairbanks hasn't gone far. She's still at the helm of the network as the executive director, and you can, and you should, tune in to HRN's Week in Review, which airs Wednesdays at 2 p.m., Aaron and Jack Inslee distill the week's shows into a 25-minute digestible weekly podcast so you can catch up with everything that's happening. So, if you listened to the last episode before the holiday break, you've already heard the big news that I'll be hosting the Farm Report for the winter season. And I'm super excited about it. I'm fleshing out a great lineup of guests to tackle policy issues and explore some interesting farms and some different farm products. In the meantime, I wanted to start the new year as most farmers and gardeners do, by turning to their favorite seed companies. Winter tis the season for seed catalogs. For weeks now, my mailbox has been stuffed full of colorful booklets boasting seed and supply offering to hopeful growers. Today, I'm joined in studio by Ken Green. Ken is the managing and creative director of the Hudson Valley Seed Library, not far from here in Accord, New York. Ken founded the library in 2004 as one of the first of its kind in the country. Over time, this seed collection grew from the catalog of the Gardner Public Library, which is in Gardner, New York, to what it is today, a small farm-based for-profit seed company. The Hudson Valley Seed Library offers heirloom and open-pollinated seeds for vegetable, flower, and herb varieties, many of which are produced on their farm or sourced from other farms within their region. Ken, I believe, has been a previous guest on Greenhorns Radio. Um, welcome back. Hey, thanks for having me. All right, so maybe you can start by telling us why seed is so important to you and what brought you to your seed work. 
That's a big question. We could talk about that for a long time. Uh, you know, one of the things that's interesting to me about seeds is that even now, even though there's a lot more awareness around seeds than there used to be, um, when I started this and we start, you know, I was interested in local food and who grows my food and how is my food grown and where is it grown and what practices are used and can I connect with the farmers who are growing the food? Uh, and I started to realize that a whole part of the food world was left out of the conversation around local food. And that was, where do the seeds come from? Yeah, everything starts with a seed. You know, who's growing the seeds? How are they growing? The, you know, what are we supporting um, from our plate beyond the food? What's behind that? And so that sort of started my interest in finding out about seeds. And the more I found out about the corporate seed industry and genetic engineering and the way that seeds are controlled and the loss of genetic diversity and consolidation of seed resources and all these like huge global issues. It's like, wow, there's all this stuff going on that when we're eating or even our farmers aren't aware of. And so I wanted to start doing something to try and open up that world to people. So um, what were you, when you started getting interested in seed, were you were farming then or you weren't farming? No, I, yeah. no, I've, I've done everything but farm for most of my life. <laughs> uh, and so at that time, I was actually a librarian okay. um, at the Gardner Library. And it's a little tiny, itsy-bitsy library. And so I was really abusing the interlibrary loan system <laughs> like crazy, just like I, I ordering <laughs> everything I could and just learning everything I could. And I had one of those moments where I was like, this is completely overwhelming. Like, here's little me, here's Monsanto, DuPont, Bayer, you know, and this the big, big seed, conglomeration. You know. Yeah. Um, and I was like, well, there's actually something I can do about this. If I learn how to save seeds in my little garden, then whatever seeds I've saved, I've removed myself from this system that I don't want to be part of. So, you know, it really did start with just a couple seeds and, and learning from the plants uh, how to be a seed saver. It just so happened that I was at the library, and I think libraries are radical and awesome. And I was like, oh, maybe I can use the library and the way the library works to share seeds and connect with more people. So at this time, were there other seed libraries that you were looking to? Like, you had this idea, but were you, were you looking to other seed libraries around the country to see how this worked? Or this was like independently, you're like, I love the library system. I love seeds. Let's put the two together. This, it was the first seed library in a public library in the country. That's amazing. Um, Sasha de Brule, who started Basil, which is the Bay Area Seed Interchange and Library, yeah. happened to be an intern at a farm down the road from the library. And he was coming in and using the library. And we were doing crazy stuff together, like making dino kale kimchi like in the middle of <laughs> <Crazy>. the library. <laughs> like with people like walking around us being like, why are you pounding kale in five-gallon buckets You're with like, two why, by fours? Why not? Like why that's not? what you do in a library, <laughs> obviously. Um, so he was really one of the inspirations um, for that concept. Yeah. Um, and it just really took off from there. And at a certain point, I was like reducing my hours four days a week, three days a week, two days a week. Until I was working one day a week at the library. And I was like, obviously, my life has been taken over by seeds. So let's it's do. time to just make the leap and see if I can do this full time. So let's pause for a minute on a seed library because I'm um, 
really interested in exploring that a little bit further. So when I go to a library to check out a book, I give them my library card and I, you know, I pick out my book. They tell me it's due in, you know, 14 days if it's a new item or three weeks if it's on the old shelf. And then I read it and I return it. But when I check out some seed, um, I plant it. So, you know, so I no longer have that seed. So I've got to then um, take that seed to the fruition of seed again, which in most cases, a lot of gardeners don't know those skills. That's how we've kind of come to this erasure of the seed system. We've been replaced by buying seeds from these big corporations that you've named before or through seed catalogs that might not be big corporations, but we've still kind of removed that element. So how how does this work? We're checking out seed and then we're expected to return seed that's viable, that's clean, that's true to type, all these things that... So maybe you could talk a little bit about the the seed library system. Sure. Um, So, you know, I just want to be clear that, you know, now we are a seed company. Mm -hmm. Uh, We have a full catalog and people buy seeds from us and there's no requirement to save them and return them. (laughs) Even though we only offer seeds that people can save on their own or improve or change in some way or adapt, um, that's part of our continued commitment um, sort of socially and politically around seeds. But the funny thing about starting the seed library is I was like, oh, everyone's going to be really into this and they're going to check out the seeds and save them and bring them back. And gardeners who I knew had been gardening for like 20 or 30 years were like, I don't know how to do that. Yeah, I can't do that. That's too difficult. That's too much time or that's too much pressure. Like, I don't want that responsibility. <laughs> yeah. And so I realized early on that in order for seed libraries to work and for, well, I mean, at that point for this seed, the seed library, I started to work, I needed to be an educator mm-hmm. and I needed to really teach people the skills and show them, you know, help them gain the confidence that People have been saving seeds and sharing seeds for 10,000 or more years with no, you know, degree or piece of paper or whatever. Um, And but because we lost as we were losing the diversity of what's out there genetically and losing the seeds that come, the stories that come with the seeds, we were also losing the skills. Mm -hmm. And when you start to lose skills, it actually turns into this thing where people think we're not capable and yeah, doing that. Yeah, I see that a lot too. It's just, um, you know, it's we've been the t- amount of time that we've not been saving seed is far shorter than the span of right. time that we have been. But we we've somehow lost our confidence with that skill set. Right. So the the first group that I taught about seed saving, I did all the story time programs at the library. So they were three year olds, <laughs> and we did uh, purple potted peas, the Dutch Capucaners, which are a New York state heirloom. Uh, and so I had a seed garden in front of the library, and I did this whole project with the three-year-olds. And part of the reason I started with them was to say to these gardeners who've been gardening for most of their lives, the three-year-olds can do it. It's not that hard. You can do it. Because <laughs> yeah. three-year-olds are not afraid of anything. Yeah, the, they have that fi- children have that fearlessness right. where they're just like, I'm going for it. So, um, so starting with kids was a really great way to sort of bring in more gardeners, be like, we can do this. Yeah. yeah. Um, so from there, you did transition. As you said, you were cutting down your hours at the library until seed was just everywhere. It was taking over you. Um, and then you switched to this for-profit seed company model. So yeah. maybe um, we can get into that a little bit. I, I, I suspect that seed companies, um, this time of year, winter, this is your one of your busiest seasons because you're doing 
all these orders are coming in. You have fulfillment of seeds that you're shipping out. Um, but the Hudson Valley Seed Library, um, Hudson Valley Seed Company, sorry, excuse me. <laughs> no, it is it is still called the Hudson uh, Valley Seed is, Library, okay, but it it's is, interesting because yeah. we're thinking about maybe, maybe uh, um, changing the name. We'll because see. It, yeah. I probably shouldn't say that out loud publicly <laughs> like that. But. Um, so, but you guys produce a lot of your own seeds, yes. so that kind of makes it sound like you are on all of the time. Um, so maybe... Um, is it typical? Let's start with: Is it typical for a seed company to produce all of their own seed? And um, yeah, let's start there. So you know, interestingly, out of starting the library and being sort of one of the first of that in the country, when my partner also quit his job, Doug, um, and we were like, "Let's see if we can make a living doing this." But we really wanted to be producing the seeds ourselves. Uh, partly because we wanted to be producing seed that was regionally adapted, and that's not the way the industry works. Um, generally, seeds are consolidated to certain parts of the world where they're easiest and cheapest to grow. It might be because it, that lacks a certain disease or it's a certain climate or labor is cheaper. Um, so we're looking at like most of the like spin a lot of spinach and beet seed is produced in the Pacific Northwest, right. lots of cabbage, that sort of thing. Um, yeah, exactly. And so we were like, well, we want to be growing the varieties ourselves, see how they do in our region, and learn how to save seeds from them in our region, even though it's more challenging, maybe and more expensive, maybe than sending them off to you know uh, someone to duplicate it somewhere else um, also to help the plants adapt to our region to be easier to save seed here so you know there were just so many people who said you can't do that in the northeast and um, what were what were some of the barriers that you think people were of uh, were um pitting you up against when they said that you couldn't do that in the northeast well again i think like we were saying with skills when you when something stops happening you start to believe that maybe there's like it can't mm-hmm. um you look back 100 years or 60 to 100 years ago in new york state there were lots of seed companies way more seed companies than there are now and most of them were producing seed in the northeast yeah now you look at seed companies even if they're based in new york they're not growing in new york um so I was like, if they can do it 100 years ago, we can do it now. Mm-hmm. And there's actually more reason to do it now because we've lost those regionally adapted seeds. So it was just a big experiment, really. Um, and we wound up being you know, one of the first seed companies to really put out there that commitment to we're growing our own seeds and packaging them and selling them. As we've gotten bigger, at this point we're at about 50-50, about half of the seeds we grow ourselves on our seed farm. And then we've made really wonderful relationships with other farmers uh, in the region um, who had never grown seed, training them how to yeah. grow seed. New seed um, stewards, yep, that's amazing. Exactly. <laughs> so expanding the skills and the base of seeds. And then also um, buying in seeds from uh, places that we research that we feel are responsible uh, seed sources So what are some of the seed crops that you've found that you really like to produce on your farm? And what are some of the ones that you're still um, pulling in from other places? So we do great with peppers and tomatoes. Those are great. (laughs) (laughs) They're they're really easy and uh, 
For us, we also have a lot of really unique varieties of them, and so we can do smaller populations uh, of each of those varieties and really grow a, a lot of diversity within them. They don't need a lot of isolation distance. Um, and we can use really simple caging for the peppers um, to make sure that there's only one pepper variety exposed at a time and so they're not cross-pollinating. Because also, you know, our seed farm, we're talking about, we're maxing out at like four acres. So it's, you're putting a lot of different, how many crops are you growing in one season? The fewest we've done is 25 and the most we've done is 60. So and on four acres, Which is that's insane. not that's not a lot of space between it's seeds. Not, so one and of the it's things not normal. <laughs> yeah. It's not normal. But with things <laughs> when you're doing things like tomatoes and peppers, like you've said, you you don't have um, because they're largely self pollinating. You don't have the the risk that you would if you were doing these like insect or wind pollinated crops. So you're right. able to do some more specialization. Um, but it's still a lot. It's still a lot. <laughs> and like with the cu- cucurbits. You know, we used to hand pollinate. Which the cucurbits are cucumbers and summer squash and winter squash and melons. Yes. And- yep. uh, so we used to hand pollinate so we could do multiple varieties. But as we've gotten bigger and bigger, um, we actually want to do larger populations um, for each variety so we can do more selection. We can see more diversity within the population um, and also produce more seed. We'd rather produce enough seed for two years than for half of a season. Mm -hmm. Um, And so now we're just doing one of each family um, for them so we don't have to worry about Mm cross-pollination. We can just grow those. So that's an example where we've had to find other people to steward some of the varieties or buy in varieties from other sources because we can only do one of each a year. Um, So we're going to take a quick station break, and when we come back, we're going to talk a little bit more about some of the other sources that the Hudson Valley Seed Library is sourcing their seed from. program was brought to you by S. Wallace Edwards and Sons. Edwards Suriano hams are aged to perfection for no less than 400 days and hickory smoked to achieve a deep mahogany color. The Edwards name is well known for its world-class aged and cured meats. Their exclusive curing and aging recipe produces a unique flavor profile that enhances the quality characteristics of Berkshire pork. Optimum amounts of pure white fat marbling contribute to a flavor that's a delicate, perfect balance between sweet and salty. For more information, visit edwardsvaham.com. You're listening to The Farm Report. My guest today is Ken Green, and I'm Holly Cedarholm. In case you don't recognize my voice and you're tuning in, I'm a, I'm a newer guest, a guest host to The Farm Report. And we've got uh, Ken Green on today from the Hudson Valley Seed Library. Before the break, we were digging into some of his past seed history and the seeds that they like to produce on their farm. Um, and now we're going to talk a little bit about 
um, some of the seeds that are more challenging for them to grow and um, what they're bringing in from other regional partners and other seed companies. So one of them is spinach, which you had mentioned. And the spinach that we started carrying actually um, was a breeding project that came out of Organic Seed Alliance. And so what I like about that partnership is here's a nonprofit national um, seed advocacy education and research organization that's doing really interesting, important breeding work um, and coming up with new varieties. But they're not a seed company. So they don't necessarily have a way to get those seeds out into the world. Yeah. And until those seeds are out in the world, you know, where's the value beyond the research? They need to be used and continually adapted and shared. Uh, so they worked on a spinach. It's called a, a Abundant Bloomsdale spinach. It's a really great kind of crinkly, large leaf, um, cool tolerant. Um, well, I mean, most spinach is, but, but. It, this is, has even more cold tolerance. Um, and so we partnered with them um, to release that variety once the breeding project was done um, through our catalog so that gardeners and farmers could use it. And part of what we want when people are growing that variety is to get feedback. So it was bred and developed in the Pacific Northwest. So we want to know if you're farming in... New York or you're farming in South Carolina or you're farming in Maine, how's it doing for you? And are there any tweaks or any improvements that we can work on for it? Yeah. Um, so it's interesting that you brought up the Organic Seed Alliance. Um, they're, they are a wonderful organization and they have a conference um, coming right along the 8th Organic Seed Growers Conference um, in Corvallis, Oregon in the first week of February. And I, one of the reasons I asked you here today was to do a lead-in to this conference because I know that you'll be presenting there and I'll be attending there and also doing some on-ground coverage for the Farm Report to do a special episode to kind of delve more into the seed world. And this, I mean, this is kind of the hub of the seed network um, in the United States and even elsewhere. I think they usually rally some presenters from across the the bay. Um, but so I was hoping that you could, you're a, a board member of Organic Seed Alliance. I was hoping maybe you could talk a little bit about the significance of this conference and what, what's so great about it. You know, I, when I finally made the time to go to this conference, it only happens every other year. So if you miss it, you've got to wait. wait. Yeah. Um, I didn't really know what to expect the first time I went. And I, beyond what I learned, sort of the educational value of it, there's, there's, I think, over 80 presenters this year. Um, the content is amazing. Everything from politics to actual, you know, how to be a seed producer um, type content. It's the only place where this community, where all these people who are all passionate about seeds in the same way, organic seeds, open pollinated seeds, uh, small-scale seed production, medium-scale, uh, and really trying to change the seed industry, all come together. And the sense of community there and the connections that are made, I, I mean, I was just so 
like crazy high the whole time. <laughs> I, I think I, I had a, a similar experience. I've went, um, I've gone twice now, and the first time I was like, "Oh my god!" There's all of these people. Like I thought I was an anomaly amongst exactly. other small yeah. farmers, yeah. being like, "Why aren't we talking about seed?" And I'm yeah. in a room suddenly where everyone's like, "Seed is good." Yeah, um, and you know, for me, there's a lot of kind of seed heroes um, that I got to meet there, and got to sort of make that transition from just being like, oh my God, Frank Morton, he's so amazing. You know, he's created all these new varieties and his catalog is so amazing and whatever, to being um, like... Frank Morton has Wild Garden Seed, which is a, a really great seed company um, based out of Oregon. Yeah. To actually meet him and then over time develop a friendship with him and sort of transition from just being like an outsider, like you were saying, we were like, this cool stuff is happening to being like, oh, like this is a community and, you know, it's really interesting because I've been to other types of seed gatherings that were focused more on the commercial seed industry. Mm-hmm. It's very cutthroat. It's very competitive. It's very, like, frenemy mm. kind of based when you're there. The Organic Seed Growers Conference, it, you know, everyone there wants to share. They want everyone else to succeed. And so if there's some skill that I have that I think will help everyone else, I'm there to share it. Which you are you are going to be there to share. So you're presenting on a panel, Education as a Profit Center in Organic Seed Operations. Um, and I was hoping that we could talk. You started talking about how um, when you were making the transition from operating the seed library out of the public library, you realized that education was a really important part to seed work. So now you're, you're, you've obviously worked a lot on doing education and generating revenue, presumably from this title, <laughs> in your own for-profit seed company. So why, um, maybe we can, we're going to just come circle again about why education is so important and what you're actually doing to... Um, to see it benefit your business. Right. So my background actually is in teaching. I was a special ed teacher um, before I was at the library. The library was like a part-time job while I was finishing my master's in special ed and have a lot of years teaching. Um, And so I already like value education and, you know, in a lot of different levels. But in terms of seeds, one of the first things I realized, like I was saying, is that the only way we can start to transform the seed industry is to have more people engaged in producing high-quality seed. Yeah. And whether that's a home gardener sharing seeds through a seed library in their community or someone who says, I'm going to be a commercial seed grower, uh, they need the right um, type of skills based on their scale. And you're, the transformation you're talking about is sort of this take back of the seed from um, it being sort of farmed out to these larger corporations who don't really care about diversity or regional seed selection or those types of things. So you want to put it back into the hands of the people on the scale that is comfortable for them to operate on. Right. And so I started first teaching home gardeners um, and really developing good curriculum and activities around that. Because um, a lot of home gardeners don't necessarily have uh, uh, knowledge of botany, um, sort of basics of plant mechanisms, reproductive mechanisms. Um, all of that isn't really part. You don't have to have those skills to, to be to a be gardener. Good, a good gardener too. You can right. you can know you know what the weather looks like and what your soil looks like and put some stuff out and get 
great crops year after year, but you don't right. necessarily need to know those details. Right. But when you're ready to be a seed saver, you got to kind of up your game a little bit um, yeah. in the garden. So that's sort of who I started with. Um, and, and this was work that you were doing as part part of the seed company? or Originally as part of the library, then as part of the seed company, and then I really started getting um, asked to teach seed saving um, at botanic gardens, for garden clubs, uh, CSAs, you know, that have an education program. Yeah. So I started traveling more and more teaching that. And then when we got to the point for our next level, which was, okay, we can't produce all of the seed we need to ourselves. I would really want seed being produced for us to be from our region. So how do I train farmers who are used to a certain way of organizing their farm and certain farming practices and, and quality standards? And um, yeah, how do, how do we teach farmers how to integrate one or two seed crops into diversified vegetable production? And it, it was sort of the same thing over again that happened at the library, but on a larger scale, which was a lot of fear, <laughs> a lot of like, I don't have time. And far, I mean, for farmers, they're adding, overworked. Yeah, adding time, is, you that's, know. A, that's a log. <laughs> and so it was like, well, how do we do this? In a, how do I teach this in a way that builds the confidence and also doesn't create a lot of extra work for farmers? So what can we take on as a seed company? What piece of this... Um, so that it's manageable for the farmers. And and how do did you start with certain, did you introduce, like, are there introductory seed crops that you're like, hey, it would be really less terrifying if you started with some open pollinated, um, self-pollinating tomatoes that don't need, like, right. is that where you start? Or? It's farm by farm. Yeah. So it's actually been really interesting because different farmers have different confidence levels with different crops. Yeah. And also... Um, so if someone really is a tomato farmer, they're probably actually not the best choice for a tomato variety. They want to grow all of their tomatoes in a block, in rows, all tight together, take care of them so, the same way. So they're easy to harvest right. and they can just go through on, you know, preparing for their market, just like beeline down, sort them the way they want and not really maybe pay attention the way you need them right. to. But if they're not growing a pea they're using a trellis system for their tomatoes, mm -hmm. then that might be a really good choice for them. Or if I have a flower farmer, an Asian green might actually be a really great variety for them, yeah. whereas a zinnia would not be because they're already growing a lot of zinnias and there's going to be cross-pollination. Yeah. So I kind of look at the, their farm plan, the way they do things, their approach, um, and find the right fit for them. But the education piece was really the tough one, which is you know when do farmers have time to learn new skills and how much do they need to know to be able to do this well so yeah. we actually got a SARE grant which is a sustainable agriculture research and education grant through NOFA New York uh, and with that grant we did two things one we started a farmer training program around integrating seed crops into diversified vegetable farms so That's it was a great. monthly uh, training on our farm and then it also paid for us to be able to go to the farms to do visits yeah. And then the other thing we did, which was really fun for any plant nerds out there, is... <laughs> I'm sure there are lots of plant nerds. <laughs> so the varieties that the farmers were growing as part of the training program, we were also growing on our farm. Oh. So we wanted to compare the quality of the seeds. Because one of the things that people say is you can't grow high-quality seeds in the Northeast. Once we started proving that you can grow high-quality seeds in the Northeast... 
The next thing people said was, well, if you're just working with farmers and they're just doing one or two varieties, their seeds aren't going to be as high quality as yours are because you have a dedicated seed farm where you can pay a lot of attention. Yeah. And so we did testing on the same variety on our farm with the same variety on a satellite farm. And what were what were some of the metrics you were looking at? Like, were you looking at germ rate and what they... Tell, walk me through that. So... Uh, the main thing that people are talking about when they're worried about seed quality, there's a few things. They're, they're talking about germination rate. Uh, they're talking about the vigor, how fast it grows, how quickly it sets roots and, and new leaves. Uh, and they're talking about diseases, especially seed-borne diseases that can be passed on. Um, so if, if you grow a seed and it has a seed-borne disease and you pass that on to a gardener or a farmer, you're actually passing on that disease to them. And if that's an endemic disease that can wind up in the soil or like, you know, (laughs) so you don't want to be sharing seeds like that. So what we did was we did disease testing um, throughout the entire life cycle of the plant. So the edible stages, as well as flowering and seed stages um, to see what Northeast diseases could be affecting those types of seed quality issues. And then once the seed harvests were done and cleaned and dried, we tested the seeds themselves for seaborne diseases, um, including seed coat and sort of internal um, you know, viruses and funguses. Um, and so I was like and emotionally prepared to like find all kinds of problems oh, no. <laughs> and just be like, it's okay, like it's a grant, you're supposed to find problems and then work on solutions. Yeah. And instead what happened was everything was great basically we only had one crop that had sea quality issues we knew it right away it, the the plants looked terrible diseases moved in quickly so no surprises. it wasn't yeah. like we wouldn't have known it would have been a crop failure anyway everything else whether it was on our farm or on a satellite farm had the same high quality that any you know same standards as any seed company that you get seeds from so i was like First of all, this is awesome to have the data yeah. to be able to go out and now say to gardeners and farmers that you we can thought do we were doing a good job, but we are. But we actually <laughs> yeah. are doing a good job. Yeah. And also to say to farmers, you can produce high quality seed. It's a nice. You it's go a, through a training program. Yeah. You learn the right skills. You will produce high quality seed. It's a great affirmation. It's a great solid pat on the back. Like, yeah. you know, you can you can do it. The, um, one of the things that I think is really interesting about the Hudson Valley Seed Library as a seed company, so there, I think I think now there's a lot of emerging seed companies that are doing regional seed and focusing on open pollinated seed, which can be saved um, again with without um, with trueness to type in that. Um, one of the things that I think really distinguishes you guys kind of falls in line with the education in a different sense is you make these really beautiful seed packets. I feel like um, different companies focus on education in different ways, but I like the, these are like visually stimulating and make you really want to dig in. So I maybe you can describe one better than me, but they seed they're all the the seed packets are artist designed and they kind of like unfold into these like. I don't like a bloom kind of shape. I love origami. Okay, that's, so that makes sense. I'm like, I don't really know how to describe this, but they're very. It's a quatrefoil. That's the technical okay. name for the shape. I did not know um, that. So it's a, it's a, it sort of unfolds like it has four petals basically yes. and yeah. the center. Um, but the idea for the artwork came about partly because 
you know how people talk about fashion magazines? And how, how do they talk about fashion magazines? They say, magazines? you know, <laughs> these photos are airbrushed or, um, you know, they stretched it out and this isn't really how people look. And yet we're taught to aspire to that level for of our beauty. bodies or, or our faces or our features to look like these things that aren't actually real. Mm-hmm. That, you know, vi- our visual environment has a real impact on what we desire. And so seed companies kind of do the same thing. They take beautiful photos. They, you know, and I'll say to people, you know, there if there were a bunch of tomatoes with blossom end rot, they're not taking a picture of those. No. If there was one that didn't or they can photograph it in a way to not show that, that's, you know, that's the photo. Yeah. And, and I mean, no one wants to look at a dirty brown little spot no. on the bottom of the tomato. <laughs> yeah, and they can be super saturated. And, you know, there's all kinds of things to make the photos look great. And I think for me, as a beginning gardener, I would look at those photos and then I would look at my garden and be like, wait a second, I'm fa- like I'm a total garden failure because what I'm growing doesn't look like it does in the catalog. Like my carrots are, the carrots that I'm growing in my clay soil might be a little bit shorter than the carrots that they're growing in their very loose, sandy soil. Right. And you're like, what did I do wrong? Yeah. yeah. And so when, I was, when we got to that point, we were like, we can do our own seed packs. What should they look like? Like, what do we want them to look like? I wanted people to think about the stories behind the seeds. Yeah. The se- maybe it's a story about the seed steward who developed that variety. Maybe it's something, an uh, ecological story, a story of diversity. There's all these amazing different stories that come with the seeds. And I thought, well, if we used artwork and not like botanical illustration, you know, we're talking about I commission artwork from contemporary fine artists and i tell them the seed story i was wondering about that so i was looking at a picture last night online um you people should really look at these um there was one it was a blue corn variety and when you sort of unfolded the quattro foil the the quattro (laughs) foil it became um this beautiful blue ear of corn but in the background there was kind of like a map it was like set on a map and i'm like I don't know that the artist knows. So I was wondering if there was like a collaboration on how to interpret the story and yeah. then you let the artist visually um, show that interpretation. Yeah, absolutely. So I work with the artists that we commission from. Every pack is a different artist. I tell them about the seed story. I talk to them about the qualities of the variety, why we're choosing to honor that variety with artwork. And then I let them go and do their thing and interpret that story through their artwork so for that one which is blue jade uh sweet corn it's a dwarf sweet corn that's kind of pale blue when you harvest it and when you steam it it goes totally indigo Mm. it's gorgeous it's It's so delicious uh and it's a great variety for small space gardeners because it's a it's a dwarf variety you can actually do it in containers so it's good for rooftop growing you can grow corn on your rooftop uh and so what that artist did and the reason i chose him is he takes uh maps and postcards and all other kinds of found materials and he does these pen and ink Mm -hmm. illustrations right on top of them and i saw some of the ones he'd done with maps And I said, you know, one of the things that I really want people to think about when they're growing corn is the ancestors of corn. Yeah. And that this is one of the earliest varieties that we can say there is a relationship between people and And this plant that transformed Tiosinte, 
which when you we have some teosinte seeds when you look at them they look like little like grass heads they're dinosaur yeah. teeth or something uh, you know yeah, yeah they look like a like a large grass seed or like a grain yeah um so how did that turn into corn through people in mexico through these native communities and yet it's one of the most hybridized and now one of the most genetically engineered varieties that's basically corporations saying we own this and so i wanted a pack that really said look at this history no one can own corn no one can own corn genetics and if there was someone to give a whole bunch of money and and attention and and props to it would be the indigenous communities in mexico that did this amazing transformation, this relationship with Teosinte turning it into corn. And so he used a map of Mexico. Um, to, and the colors of the map come through the corn, um, and it really shows this um, geographic relationship and cultural relationship with corn. And I think, I think that's a really special that educational piece through art I think really reaches a lot of people but we're just about out of time and I oh, think no. I, I think I want to end on no one can own corn I think <laughs> I think that's just like the perfect place to end um, so you've tuned in to another episode of the farm report thank you so much um, I hope you'll be back with me next week um, and thank you Ken for joining me I look forward to seeing you out in Corvallis Oregon at yeah, the 8th Organic awesome. Seed Growers Conference I'm excited and our catalog is out so people can yeah. request that online our website is seedlibrary.org um, and so and I'm really happy with the catalog this year very proud of it so yeah people should definitely check that out and they should go online and, and look at all of these amazing regional varieties and a lot of the art. It's really great. So no one can own corn. All right. Thank you, Ken. Thanks so much. All right. listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archive programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.